So we're working through a discipleship pattern over kind of the years here at Mendham where we're trying to, to change our hearts and souls and minds and our strength because this is how Jesus said you love God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And, and so we came out of Wonder Life where we worked on our heart a little bit and we talked about mission this morning where we, we, that's kind of our strength component. Um, if you remember, we did, we did um, Elephant in the Family Room in the spring, and we talked about the practical elements of, of uh, family life. This morning, we're working on soul. When we talk about soul as part of our discipleship process at Menem, we're talking about the study of the scriptures, because the scriptures are not just ink on papyrus. There's something about the Word of God that, that is spiritual in a way that we can't understand, that I can't understand. Here's how Paul, who didn't realize at the time, I think, that he was writing the Word of God. He was writing letters um, to, as a, a, a minister of the gospel. He was writing about the Word of God. He said, for the Word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. It cuts between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts. Scripture has the power to get into the deep places of your heart and your mind and change you like nothing else. But we have to do our part. And so that means we don't just read it just for knowledge. Of course, that's part of it. But we read it so that it gets into our hearts and into our minds. And so I asked you last week if you would join with me over the next few weeks as we go through Ephesians five times a week for 15 minutes a day, if you would just read Ephesians with us together. So we're getting it in, getting it in, getting it in, reflect on some of the things we're talking about in church. Last week, I gave you the opportunity. I told you to take out your phones. So it was the one time in the history of Menham Hills where I said you could take out your phone. Your opportunity has now passed. But last week I told you, you should, if you have not already done it, download the YouVersion Bible app. You can still do that, although today you should do it when you go home, um, at bible.com app. This is the preeminent Bible app, the preeminent virtual Bible available for free that has been downloaded now over 200 million times. There are hundreds of versions, hundreds of languages, all kinds of Bible reading plans, all kinds of Bible commentaries available to you. There's even a children's version of the U, uh, version Bible app, all available for you for free so you can get this information, so you can join with us and get the Word of God into your souls. Now, if you're an old man like me, now I love using the online scriptures for searching for things and for studying for things, but when it comes to just sitting around, if I just want to sit with the Word of God and just reflect on it for a little bit, I get my Bible out. Now, I've had three Bibles since I became a believer. It occurred to me as I wrote this week that my wife bought me all three of them, which I think might say something about my need for the Word of God. But um, the first Bible I ever got, um, I think we were dating, and she bought me the NIV Study Bible. And so because maybe you're like me and you want something tangible that you can put your hands on, this is thick. And it's thick because there's lots of commentary in here. There's probably, I'd have to do the word study, but there might be more commentary in here than Bible. Um, so if you ever sit around and go, I, I'd like to read the Bible, but I can't understand it, this is a Bible that would help you understand it. Um, this is available. I have some of these. I know a bunch of them went in the first service, but there's some of them left out at the um, Welcome Center. I think these are usually like $36. Um, if you could, this is kind of a free will offering thing. If you need this Bible and you don't have the money for it, 
just say, hey, John said this one's on him, and take the Bible. It actually wouldn't be on me, it would be on the church. But um, if, you could help with a, uh, uh, if you could help with a $25 donation, pick this up on your way out. Great resource for you. All right, let's move on. Last week, we started the book of Ephesians. Some of you know some of the history of the book of Ephesians. I talked to you about that last week, why this book is so important, how it encapsulates almost all of both um, theological truth and relational truth about who God is. But, but I want to give you a little bit of background on where it came from this week. This book that we're reading really isn't a book. If you know the history of the Bible, most of the New Testament is not books, they're letters. And this is a letter from the Apostle Paul, maybe based on the faith background you come from, you might have, have referred to him as St. Paul. Some of you know St. Paul's background, but for those of you who don't, Paul did not start out in life as an early adapter uh, of the following of this Jesus. If anything, here's the truth, Paul started out as an early adapter as a persecutor of this Jesus, or at least of his followers. This is crazy stuff, okay, but the person who wrote most of the New Testament was feared by the early disciples and followers of Jesus. They were scared to death of this Paul because he was very well known. He was a respected leader in the temple. But here, Paul, in his his religiosity, in his religious fervor, he wound up being present and assisting in the killing and the martyrdom of the first followers of Jesus. The guy that wrote most of the New Testament also helped kill the first Christian martyr. He would have been characterized as an enemy of the cross. Yeah, and again, this is, guys, this is why I'm staring at this, because you need to understand this is verifiable history that we're talking about. This is not some, you know, fable. It's not Aesop's fable. This is a historical account. Paul would tell you that he was on a journey to a place called Damascus, and he met, much to his chagrin at the time, he met the risen Jesus Christ. We, he, this is the most verifiable thing in, in antiquity, okay? You can go and do the work on this. There are many things that you believe firmly in that have much less evidence associated with them than Paul's conversion to Christianity. And what a wonderful proof of our faith, right? Paul lays down all of his prestige and rank and honor, and he becomes the most preeminent follower of Jesus on record, and he winds up writing most of what we call the New Testament. It's an incredible story just on its own. And these these writings that we call books really are just letters that he writes to churches that he went on missionary journeys to. And and, and some of these are, are larger, some of them are smaller gatherings in various parts of the world. Now, have you ever gone and told your relatives or some of your friends, I want you to know, I'm starting now, I'm following Jesus? What was the reaction? Well, you could get some rolled eyes. It quickly gets you uninvited to lots of parties sometimes, right? But in the first century, when, there's, when you're a participant in the temple and the religious system, and you're under the Roman oppression, when you suddenly, as Paul, a big wig in, in his religion, stands up and goes, I've changed my mind, I'm now following Jesus, and it turns out that Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is that can get you in trouble. And it got Paul in a lot of trouble. So when Paul is not shipwrecked or being beaten or being flogged, he often finds himself in prison. 
And in these Roman cells, where, again, he pens some of these most famous books, those books that he wrote in those cells are called prison epistles. Ephesians is one of those books. Paul is in a Roman jail when he writes this to a church in a city called Ephesus, a a large metropolitan city that's predominantly known for its worship of the god Artemis. Talk about that more later. In fact, if you go to Rome, I have a friend that's here this, today. She was telling me that she was in, in Ephesus a few years ago, and she was showing me pictures of Paul's journey around Ephesus on her cell phone. Because this is not a story. This is a historical document. If you go to Rome, you can visit the place where legend has it. Now, I don't know that this is actually where, this, where the prison was. But according to legend, here is a picture of where Paul was imprisoned and wrote the letter we're reading. Because we're not doing fables here. We're doing truth. Okay, if you were here last week, in this letter, Paul wrote from that jail, he starts by talking to us about our identity. Now, I need to tell you, if you're sitting there and you're going, yeah, these are all good, but here's what the deal is, John. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. I just just want to know what I'm supposed to do. It's cute. Steve tells me some of the times the kids will, will text them from school. I came across this issue. What's our stance on this again? Because that's the human condition, right? Like, just tell me what to do. I I, I don't even know. Just tell me what to do. But Paul in Ephesians does not start by telling you what to do. He does get to that. But he does not start in the first half of the letter by telling you what to do. The first half of the letter is more about your identity, who you are, than it is how you behave. It's more about who you are than how you act. Why would Paul spend half of the letter... Not on teaching you how to behave, but teaching, who you are, who, teaching you who you are. Why? Because if he started with how you were supposed to act, Paul knew what would happen is he would build another religion. He would build a people who were trying to be good, who were people trying to act in a certain way, born out of a duty or an obligation or fear. Instead, Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not what this is about. This is about a change in identity. And so key principle number one for Paul was helping you understand before he tries to get you to change what you do, he wants you to understand something. And he writes it from that prison cell. He says, guys, as followers of Jesus, you're not just born again. We talked about that last week. You don't just have a new life source placed in you, but you've also been adopted. In fact, the language adopted is talked about much more in the New Testament than rebirth. And we talked about why that was so important last week. There's a reason that word was loaded with meaning. You are adopted, chosen sons of the Lord Most High. One of the things you learn about adopting a child that Paul was trying to get get across, if you've adopted a child or you know somebody that has, adoption is very expensive. In the United States, it costs somewhere between $25,000 and $40,000 to use a nonprofit agency to adopt the child. And if you sit there and go, boy, that's a lot. That would be a lot to adopt a child that I hope someday would love me. To that, God would say, tell me about it. Because I gave my only son, my only begotten son, in exchange to redeem, we talked about that last week, to redeem you. Adoption is expensive, and there was a high price given for you. You are sons and daughters chosen by God, bought, paid for, ransomed by Jesus Christ. The second thing we learned about adoption last week is that usually when you adopt a child, you adopt them out of a bad situation. 
You take them from something where their destiny is uncertain and their future looks bad, and that's what, what happened to you and I as adopted sons and daughters of God, once separated from God, both here on earth and into eternity, a bad destination, a bad future. We have been adopted out of it and from it. So we become sons and daughters of the Most High God. Paul says you need to understand that. Before I tell you what to do, you need to understand who you are. Now, as we move on, as Paul continues to try to explain who you are, he uses what at the time obviously was not a common plot, but one that you and I see on TV shows and movies all the time. It's kind of an age-old story. Uh, You've probably seen it. It usually happens to the main character in whatever story you're watching. There's a knock on their door, or a car drives up the driveway, and out drops a messenger, and he begins to bring good news. That's a good Bible word, right? He begins to bring a gospel to the person at the other end of the door. He says, hey, your long-lost aunt... Or, or, or this vague acquaintance from your past has left you something. She has died and, and she's left for you an inheritance. She mentioned you in her will. And there's going to be a reading of the will. Have you seen this on TV like a million times? There's going to be a reading of the will coming up on whatever day and you need to go down to the attorney's office and be part of that. Now, there's, there's usually three reactions to that kind of news. That's never happened to me. I would long for that to happen to me. I keep hoping there's an old rich Aunt Tilly. But here would be the normal reactions to news like this. The first reaction is one of disbelief, right? Aunt Tilly. Aunt Tilly left me money. I didn't even know I had an Aunt Tilly. I only met her once when I was a kid. And so the shock and the disbelief at their fortune, at your fortune and blessing, is reaction number one. And can I explain to you, that is what Paul is dealing with last week. When he gives you the incredible news and blessing regarding your adoption as sons and daughters, even though you too were far off from Father God, even though you had rebelled and walked away, even though you would go, wait a minute, he adopted me? I don't, so I, he, he chose me? He's leaving me something? The good news is that he has not forgotten about you. He has predestined you and I to be adopted children of God, of the Most High God. But here's the second question. Okay, so, so Aunt Tilly, I understand. Okay, Aunt Tilly. Hmm, okay, God, despite the fact that I've kind of marginalized him, God wants me to come for this reading. Well, the second question that goes through the character's mind regarding uh, this is the mystery of the will. I mean, why did Aunt Tilly leave me this? Why did she pick me? Why did God choose me? Was there no one else than Aunt Tilly? Didn't I have a cousin? Was there somebody else that would have been been more important that, that, that God could have left this stuff to? Why would he do this? And here's the truth. The Bible talks about this being a mystery for, for millennia. Paul references the concept of mystery over and over in his letters because as Paul sees it, God has been up to something since the foundation of time that no one has truly understood. Paul says he's had a plan. Please understand, God has always had a plan. You know, like God wasn't tripped up by what Satan did. Okay, that didn't come as a shock. You know, Jesus is not plan B. God has always had a plan. And he's been at work for centuries now. Poets and prophets, they speculated about the will of God, what he was going to do, what he was up to. You've done this. Have you ever watched TV at night, watched the news and go, what are you doing? What are you doing? 
And here's what Paul says as he goes on after he convinces his reader that you are an adopted son of daughter. In verse 9 he says this, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. We gathered here today and now he's going to tell us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. So are you ready to see the eternal mystery of God revealed? And see, this is the problem with the church. Right there. Well, maybe. <laughs> time the giant's on? Brunch ends at what time? What? I am offering to you to see the mystery that Paul taught. I mean, let me help you understand this. This is the plan that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that they wrote about but couldn't fully explain. This is the plan that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob looked forward to but never saw. Are you ready, church, to see the mystery, the plan of God from the beginning of time revealed to you? Yes. All right, here it is. Put, see, Maxine's fired up. Here's the plan. I'm going to sum it up for you in one word. You ready for the word? You take it out of here today, you can explain life to everyone you meet. Here it is. That's the plan. Anna, Kefela, Iosis, Thigh. Anna, Kefela, Iosis, Thigh. Anna, Kefela, Iosis, Thigh. Anna, Kefela, Iosis, Thigh. You ready to say it with me? Anna, Kefela, Iosis, Thigh. If you play Scrabble tonight, you are going to hammer somebody with this one. I'm telling you that right now. That's the revelation of the mystery of God revealed in Jesus Christ that had been hidden for centuries. That's it. Now, since you and I don't know Greek, let me put it in one of, uh, one of the common, more common translations. Here it is in verse 10. It says, okay, so this is the, the word of God. So here is the plan. Here's the mystery. This is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. That's the plan. That's it. Now, you might go, that's not all that exciting. I thought I was going to get some money out of this. But that's it. Because you need to understand, when this was revealed, heaven rejoiced the angels would have clasped their mouths in astonishment about this plan. Let me explain why to you. If you know our story, our story begins in a garden. And it begins with man deciding, I would like to be... See, see maybe mommy told you that we sin by eating an apple. That's like a real simplistic understanding of it. Really what happened was, man was offered the opportunity. Man was deceived into believing that if he disobeyed God, he could become like God and he could begin to determine for himself what's right and what's wrong. And man said, that sounds good. And now sometimes we'll look at Adam and Eve and we'll go, oh, those fools, they ruined everything for everybody. To which I say to you, how many times a day do you go, well, I could go my way or God's way, but I really think I want to go my way. And what the scripture tells us, when that moment occurred, something happened. Actually, two things happened. Here's the first thing that happened. 
There was something operating in the Garden of Eden that in Hebrew is called shalom. Now, you might have heard some of your Jewish friends say shalom. It's a term of greeting in the Jewish culture. But that's not its meaning. Shalom, you can go home and... Shalom, I've got to read you shalom, okay? Because shalom does not translate into one word. It is a powerful word beyond what most of us would understand. Here's what was going on in the garden prior to us deciding we wanted to be God. Shalom was going on, and shalom means completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, and the absence of agitation are discord. That was shalom. And when man decides he's going to choose to become God, two things happen. The first is we disconnect ourselves from the only source of life that was available to us. We got our life from God. As we disconnect, we die. This is why if you read the scriptures, the early, uh, early, early people that are recorded, they live much longer, but the penalty of sin over time winds up, we all settle into about a 60, 70, 80 year span because you were born disconnected from the source of life. That's the first thing that happened. Here's the second thing that happens. Number one, death enters in. The second thing is shalom is broken. Completeness, wholeness, peace, welfare, safety, tranquility, prosperity, it all goes away. Paul, in another one of his writings, he says it's like this. It's like at that moment, creation, which used to work with man, at that point, creation became subject to frustration. Put in simpler terms, things in this world no longer go the way they were meant to or should. Now, can I ask you a question? If you have lost somebody you love because of the penalty of death, or if you have ever looked at the circumstances of your lives or your friends and said, this is not the way it's supposed to be, can you raise your hand? You have tasted the lack of shalom. And here is the mystery that's been revealed to you. This is the mystery if you understood it because you've tasted what's happened that you would put your mouth, hand over your mouth in awe too. That God, through what he was doing with Jesus Christ, is returning to you, number one, life forever and ever and ever and ever, an opportunity to be reconnected, to be born again into eternal life. And at least for those of you that would come to faith in Jesus. And the second thing he's saying is, I am reestablishing shalom. That long word we looked at, right? The ANA in it means again, and the kafala in it means head. And so God is putting all things back the way they were under the head, the guidance, the authority of Jesus. What once was, what was meant to be, will be true once again. I need to explain this to you. This is why this is so important. This is a concept dealing with the centrality and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Christianity is by its very nature an exclusive religion. I know this doesn't sell well in the religious and spiritual marketplace. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. I know that is a really hard principle. And I know if, it, if, if left unexplained, one could say in the world we live in today, boy, that seems kind of exclusive. That seems kind of narcissistic. Unless there is truth. If truth can be found, 
And if what Jesus was speaking is truth, if what Paul is speaking is truth, then here's how you need to understand this exclusive claim. What Jesus is saying is, there is no one else coming for you. There is no one else coming for you. I was the one who made you. And my Father in heaven is reestablishing everything back to the way it was. And I would like you to come with me. According to Paul, God is reorganizing everything. It's disunited, it's fractured, it's broken. Maybe you see this in your family, in your job, at work. You, gosh, do we see it in our politics? Do we see it? I mean, parts are lying scattered all over the place. And Paul says, the word of God says, it brings God great pleasure to bring it all back together in unity in Jesus Christ. All of it. All of history, all of everything every human has ever done. Paul, writing in Colossians, said this. He said, God was pleased, again, the same pleasure principle, through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's not just Paul that says it. How about Jesus? He, in the book of Matthew, he's saying, he says to his followers, truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things. This is the mystery revealed. It's going to get fixed. It's all being summed up into Jesus. That's why there is no other name under heaven by which you might be saved. Jesus is talking about restoring and reconciling and renewing. Paul and Jesus are consistent and persistent in their claims that what God is up to in the world involves putting everything together as it should be. And for you, what does that mean? Your broken heart? All things. Poverty, 40 families on a waiting list to get emergency housing in Morris County, all things. Do you see how you become an agent of this reconciliation, as Paul says, by the way? Abuse, all things. Racism, all things. Fractured relationships, all things. And that is why you have been invited to the lawyer's office today for the reading of his will. This is the answer to the question we ask. This is, what is God up to? This is the good news. You as an adopted son or daughter are being bought together as a part of the reworking of shalom. This is why God's going to, this term is going to be used through the rest of Ephesians. Do you start to understand why a good marriage can be a reflection of Christ in the church? Unity, union, oneness. This is beginning to happen now and it'll happen fully in days to come. And so Paul goes on, he says, if this is true, if that's why, if that's the mystery that's been solved, now I understand why I've been included. So what do I get? I understand why until he left me, left me something, what'd you leave me? I understand, Lord, what you're up to, this unification in Jesus. So what is the, what do I get? Paul put it this way in verse 11. He says, furthermore, because we're united with Christ, we become one with him. We've received an inheritance from God. He chose us in advance. He picked you. And he makes everything work out. Do you see shalom start to happen? He makes everything work out according to his plan. Do you know you're sitting in church listening to this this morning? Because of the will of God. Here's what we know about your inheritance. Remember last week, the point in the first century about an inheritance was when they talked about adoption, they didn't talk about babies. 
People, rich people adopted sons and daughters to leave their inheritance to. They'd look at their own children and they'd say, I don't think this kid can cut it. I'm going to go get me a smart kid. I'm going to leave him my stuff because he'll make a name for me. That was adoption in the first century. So that's one thing we learn about inheritance. Here's, here's how Peter described your inheritance. Peter said um, that we've been born into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. I got a call from my mom's financial advisor this week. He's a great guy. Dealing with my inheritance, by the way. He's a great guy, and he called, and he said, John, remember that meeting we had in the summer? I said, yeah. And he said, remember how you kept pressing me, saying, how could this be the return on those assets? We made those changes last year, and I really expected, the, given what had happened and what we invested in, the return to be much more significant than this. Is this really all that happened? And he's, he's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. He called me this week, and he said, John, I have to tell you, I went back to my office, and I haven't been able to say anything because it's been tied up with the lawyers. He said, but I can confirm to you today that you were right and I was wrong, and I forgot to invest that money the way you told me to. And he said, so what I'm going to do is I'm going, I've gone back and figured out what that investment would have done. I'm going to repay you. You're going to repay your mom all of the money that she lost out of my own pocket. So he's a wonderful man, right? He's a good guy. But here's the deal. An inheritance in this world vanishes quickly. You put it with the wrong person. You invest it in the wrong thing. You buy a car. It rots it fades, it goes away. Peter says, guys, you are getting something. I want you to understand what you're being given. You're being given something now that you are in and with Christ, something that can't perish or soil or fade. And then he goes on, Peter going back to Ephesians, Peter, or Paul going back to Ephesians says, let me explain to you your inheritance. It's going to come to you in three ways. And he's going to pray that you have eyes to see it. Starting in 118, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart when the Bible talks about the eyes of your heart, he's talking about the, that seat of understanding in you. Because if you just look at the world the way it is right now, you go, I can't see that that could be true. Paul's praying, I pray that spiritually something deep inside of you would be open so that you can see this right. I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened in order that you may know first, first thing, the hope that you've been called to. He, prays, he says, I pray that you start to understand what you've, you've been given. And by no, that's an intimate word. It's not knowledge. It's not like, oh, I got $10,000. Paul's saying, I, I hope you, you, you can know the hope to which you've been called. And that's everything that he's talked about already. The present partiality, the full coming of shalom. I hope that you would know what you're being given. This is the adopted sons. This is the redemption from sin. This is the salvation from death, the saving them from our bad situation. He says, I hope you know it deeply. And this is why I've asked you, would you think about studying this 15 minutes a day, five times a week? Just know it in your soul and start to go, sit in your chair and go, I'm an adopted son of God? So he's not mad at me, he's picking me? And then on Tuesday, you sit around and you go, I have an inheritance from God? So it's not just that he picked me, but he's giving me things? I have been redeemed by God at a cost. I'm important enough to God that he gave his son for me. See, this is Paul, Paul saying, you need to get this in. That's why I'm asking you to join with me in the, in the reading of these scriptures. 
And then he goes on. He goes, okay, the first thing is, I want you to know intimately this hope that I've talked about. And then he says, I want you to know deeply the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. This can be interpreted two ways, as I understand it. When it was written in the Greek, it was passive in language. So it could mean one of two things, either our inheritance or Jesus's inheritance. And if you read it as Jesus' inheritance, do you know what the, the, the scripture is saying? Do you know what Jesus inherits? Do you know what the Father has given the Son? Tom Rapp. Congratulations, Jesus. Here's Tom. Now, Tom, I know him, he would probably go, Jesus did not get a good end to this deal, right? But what Jesus would say is, oh, you don't understand who he is. He's blameless. He's holy. He's bought with a price. He's worth more than you can understand. And Jesus would rejoice. The Father gives to the Son the church as his inheritance. You, because of what Jesus has done for you, you become a gift to God. This is why angels start to put their hands over their mouths and go, holy cow, are you kidding me? But, but that's just one way of interpreting. I think the more common way it's interpreted, and I think it's both, by the way. I think it's written this way, so you would think both. Our it's not that Jesus is, our, it's not that Jesus' inheritance is just us. It's that our inheritance becomes Jesus. When I became a Christian, I inherited him. He became mine. And that's why these, both of these things are true. Paul says in Corinthians, he says to the church at Corinth, to you, he says, for all things are yours. You've been given everything. Do you see why the angels go, holy smokes? He's giving it all to them? You've been given everything. Paul says to the church at Corinth, everything's yours, Paul, whether, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. This is the quote, all are yours. In other words, he says, you inherit it all. You obtained an inheritance in Christ. You are co-heirs. You are brothers and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. He says, and you are Christ." You inherit everything, and he inherits you. When you become a Christian, Corinthians, again, it says, he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. One spirit. You become one with Jesus, and you know what happens? He becomes yours. You become his so that you lose your identity because, after all, Paul is trying to get you to understand your identity before he tells you how to live. A Christian truly has no identity apart from Christ. You know, this is a very famous verse in the Bible, right? When Paul, when he's getting, things are getting sticky for him and, and he's wondering if he's going to live, he says, for me to live is Christ. If I live, if I live, I, I live as Christ. And then to die, well, that would be gain because I'll get my heavenly inheritance. This is why we go through the world living. When we live as Christians, we don't live as, as, as people apart from God. We live as Christ would live. We love the way he loved. We become agents of reconciliation, agents of putting it all back together again. That's what this is all about. We're not in the world to take advantage, to get rich for wild success. We're in the world to lose our lives like Jesus lost his for the good of others and there 
if you're looking to figure out why you're here, man, that should just swoop you off your feet and you should say, sign me up. Paul's prayer about your inheritance ends this way. This is the last thing he hopes for you and he's trying to get you to understand what you've been given. And if you haven't had your mind blown yet, because if you've tasted the loss of shalom and if you've tasted death and you buy this, if you believe this is true, this can change everything for you. Paul says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. He says, I pray that you might see, know the riches of your glorious inheritance. And then he says this, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. You have been given incomparably great power. But we walk around like losers. Oh, we're so persecuted as Christians here. People are so mean to me. They don't invite me to their parties anymore. And Jesus, the scripture is saying, do you have any idea the power that you have been given? In fact, Paul goes on. He says this way. This is, this is how strong the power is. He's trying to help you understand how to measure what you've been given. He goes, let me explain to you the power you've been given. Paul goes on, he says, the power that I'm talking about is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked. In Ephesus, far above this God Artemis that you're all worshiping. Not only in this present age, but in the age to come, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything. Do you see it coming back together? over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fulfills everything in every way. You get that power. That's yours. Now, Paul could have used any comparison to speak of that power because it's just a measurement tool. He goes, you want to know how strong the power is? It's the same power that raised Christ from the death. He could have compared the power to the power of hanging planets in the sky. He could have compared the power to that of, of, of nuclear fission. He could have compared the power to, to the power that spreads stars across the heavens. But instead he compared the power to death. Why? Because of all the powers that exist in the world, there is no power like death. One writer said this, why does a hurricane have power at all? Why do we say that a hurricane is powerful? Because it has the power to kill someone. Mankind can harness the same power of creation. We can split the atom. Why do we say an atomic bomb? Why are we, so, why are we locked in this arms battle? Why are we so afraid of it? Does, does, the, does it have power? Yes. Where is the power gained from? In its ability to kill you. Does cancer have power? Yes. It has the power to kill you. Death is the main power arrayed against us. The Bible calls it the last enemy. If you could lick that power, there would be no other power that could be a match for you. If you could lick the power of death, there is no fear in life. And that's what God did when he snapped the power of death. Peter said God raised Jesus from the dead. He freed him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Paul goes on to make fun of death, saying, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? That's a taunt. It's incredible that somebody can taunt death. This is why angels put their hands over their mouths and go, You're kidding me. There's a letter. This is very, in my family, we have a, 
um, Joan's dad got a really bad diagnosis, so we're struggling with a bad diagnosis. So we're tasting the loss of shalom in very deep places in our family right now. And when I read this, I put my hand over my mouth and say, you're kidding me. There's a letter I came across from a young Lutheran German minister who was put to death in a Nazi death camp. And the letter was published after the war. He isn't famous. You never heard him. His name was Herman. This is what he wrote to his parents the day he died. Quote, when this letter comes into your hands, mom and dad, I'll no longer be among the living. The thing that has occupied our thoughts constantly for many months is now about to happen. And if you ask me what state I'm in, I can only answer this. I am first in a joyous mood, and second, I am filled with great anticipation. God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. What consolation, what marvelous strength emanate from Christ. I'm a, what strength emanates from Christ. Your inheritance. I'm amazed. In Christ I've put my faith, and precisely today I have faith in him more firmly than ever. He goes on, he goes, Mom and Dad, look up the following passage. 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 14. Look anywhere you want in the Bible. Everywhere I find jubilation over the grace that God makes us children of God, adopted sons and daughters of God. What can really happen to a child of God? Of what indeed should I be afraid? Everything that till now has, has uh, everything that till now I have done, that I've struggled for and accomplished, has at bottom been directed to this one goal whose barrier I shall penetrate today. I hath not seen, nor ear hath not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. He concludes, he goes, for me, believing is just about to become seeing. Hope is going to become possession. This is your inheritance, church. I shall forever share in him who is love. Should I not then be filled with anticipation? What is it all going to be like? These things that up to this time I've been permitted to preach about, today I shall see. There will be no more secrets tantalizing me, nor puzzles. Today is the great day. From the very beginning, I have put everything into the hands of God, and now he demands this end of me. Good. Good. And so, until we meet again above, in the presence of the Father of light, your joyful Herman. Band, come on up. The mystery has been revealed. What God has been up to for centuries can now be seen. He's bringing not just some things, but all things. He's bringing all things back into shalom, back under Jesus Christ. There is no other plan. He will once again be the head of all things. Once again, everything will be in full, complete peace and harmony. And he has vanquished our last foe. There is no more death. Do you understand your inheritance, what you've been given? Church, this can be theory, it can be theology, or it can be your inheritance. Difficult marriage, all things. Broken relationships, all things. Messed up priorities, all things. Bad diagnosis, death conquered. This whole thing is no longer spinning out of control. It is now and will fully one day be brought back into order, and you will no longer 
and the people you love in Christ will no longer die. So let me ask you to stand. We're going to conclude. We're going to sing this. Listen to this. Tim Cho is just the perfect song. We're going to sing this together. Um, We're going to close with that song, singing these truths. Let me close with Paul's prayer over you. And so now, Lord, I pray, pray that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened in order that we would know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of our glorious inheritance, and Jesus' incomparably great power for all of us who believe.